Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. In today's episode, vocalist and composer Ruth Naomi Floyd will discuss the work of creating as a catalyst for justice and how music and justice work together to elevate the voices and wisdom of the downtrodden. We know that art shapes and reshapes us and that it's there in the cross of Jesus, I believe, that where beauty and violence collide and beauty won. And so that act of loving someone and that being purposely trying to to love someone, especially those that seem or are viewed or deemed unlovable, is in in a way that is directly connected and intrinsically connected to our art making. Today's episode is an edited version of our online conversation from July of 2021. You can find the full video of that conversation with transcript, as well as our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. One of the big questions of life is how we think about, work within, and live faithfully within a world that was called and created to be good and beautiful and yet everywhere is marred by ugliness and injustice. So how can we, in our various spheres and stations, help repair, re-envision, and create new places of beauty, justice, and flourishing? It's a big question. And to help us wrestle with it, we are so delighted to welcome our guest today, vocalist and composer, Ruth Naomi Floyd, who has dedicated much of her life to creatively and compellingly exploring just those questions through music and the arts. Ruth Naomi Floyd is a vocalist and a composer who has been at the forefront of creating vocal jazz settings that express the theology and justice for over 25 years. She has performed and lectured prolifically, taught as a professor or an artist in residence at a number of universities, and been awarded an honorary doctorate from Concordia College for contributions to the arts, justice, and music education. The Frederick Douglass Jazz Works is her latest body of compositions, which is based on the speeches and writings of the great leading orator, abolitionist, writer, publisher, and statesman. And just this past May, she was also awarded a National Endowment for the Arts grant for her new body of work, The Francis Suite. In addition to her artistry and her music, she's also contributed to numerous works, including the books, It Was Good, Making Music to the Glory of God, published by Square Halo, and The Problem of Good. Ruth, welcome. It's so great to have you on the online conversation. Hello, Cherie. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you for the kind invitation. Absolutely. So you have been a visual artist, a photographer, a musician who plays the, I think it was the bassoon and the piano, as well as a vocalist. You've also been called an emancipatory artist. And so I'd love to start out just by asking you about your own artistic journey, both both as a musician and a vocalist, but also what an emancipatory artist is and how you became one. Thanks for asking. My parents were the product of the Great Depression. And so they both loved art and creating, but that was not an option for them. It's more about putting food on the table. So they vowed to themselves individually. And then uh, when they married, that any children they would have would study art and music. 
And they kept that promise and I'm deeply grateful as my sisters are too. And so we each started out playing piano and two instruments. I played flute and bassoon and we all sang. But it was really the point of seeing my parents be creative in areas that were broken, that were troubling, that were scary, that were just horrifying. And so my parents were urban missionaries. And in the late 60s and 70s in Philadelphia, there was a great problem of gang warfare. And so they decided to go into the community to live amongst the people in the neighborhood and combat this gang warfare. So they became part of the community. They lived and breathed the community. They knew their neighbor. They grew to love their neighbor by speaking truth of the gospel and creating and sharing an act of beauty. My father uh, worked with the youth and helped them understand Imago Day and that their lives mattered, their neighbors' lives mattered, their enemies' lives, the rival gang members, their lives mattered. And as a little girl, I would wash the blood from the slain gang members with my mother. We would scrub the street. And my mother was a creative extremist, if you will, in giving beauty by washing away the blood of the dead so that the, their mothers would not have to see the blood of their son spread across the street. Um, so my parents were what Martin Luther King calls creative extremists. And although a violent neighborhood, it remains one of the most beautiful, loving communities I've ever known. So when the when a dear friend, Dr. John Nunes, first called me a emancipatory artist, I pushed against it. I thought, oh, I'm not really that. But then I took some time to really study the word. And it's one who seeks truth, one who seeks beauty, one who stands up for truth, and one who helps others see beauty, beauty in the midst of suffering, darkness, and despair, beauty in the midst of joy and light and love. You know, the great Toni Morrison told us that the function of freedom is to free someone else. And so in truth and beauty and freedom I create, we are all his image bearers. And, and having been given that same creative capacity to create, I am just grateful to be able to have the chance, the opportunity to create beauty but particularly beauty out of ashes. That's gorgeous. You know, there was another speech that I listened uh, to of yours where you called yourself a chaser of beauty, which I thought was a beautiful phrase. And I've also heard you tell the remarkable story, I think it was of your great, great, great grandmother who was known for, for seeking beauty, even in the midst of great suffering. And it sounds in some ways like you might come by it naturally, but I wonder what you have learned in the process of, of looking for beauty when everything around you seems ugly or dark and how you would might guide others who yearn to see the beauty around them but don't. Sure. Thanks for mentioning one of my favorite human beings ever, my great-grandmother. It was her mother who was made to be a mule as a six foot two enslaved African in America to intimidate everyone around because of her strength, because of her height. They made her to be a mule, a human mule 
who pulled the plow. And it was my great-grandmother who asked her siblings and who told, and they were the ones that told her that coming from this place of dehumanization, from this place of genocidal hate and evil, she searched for beauty, whether a leaf, a, corn, a, a pine cone, a flower, a rock. She searched for it. She brought it back into the cabin. And so she also was a creative extremist, finding beauty in the midst of utter despair and evil. But one of the profound gifts of Blackness in America is the long historic dance between utter despair and unspeakable joy. It is found in our culture, in our music, in our art, in our cuisine, in our life. And so the art of seeing demands that we see it with new eyes, with different eyes, with renewed eyes. And so eyes that have the courage to look, eyes that have the courage to see, to even look in the mirror, and Lord have mercy, face the reflection that's looking back at you and what that reflection brings. You know, eyes enough and voice enough to ask the questions or to see the questions and to search for the answers. So it's, it's in that courageous act of being willing to see that I think that profound um, sense of knowledge and transformation in Reno can take place. You know, I want to ask you about love, the role of love. You know, you have uh, described both just now, but also in many other times, the creativity of a suffering people who essentially wove their trauma into something durable, enduring, and beautiful. And it made me think of Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement that uh, love is the strongest, most irresistibly creative power in the world, that there is something uniquely kind of creative and generative about love. And so I wanted to ask your thoughts about love and the act of creating, in that if love itself is essentially creative, does the act of, of making and creating also grow our capacity to love, or how should we understand the connection? Sure, you know, I think of, of course, Reverend Martin Luther King and others. I think of Vincent Van Gogh who says, the more I, I think the quote is, the more I think about it, the more I realize that there is nothing more artistic than to love each other. And I, I think when we take the great command of Jesus, and when we treat it as an option, we get in trouble. When we really understand and come to realize the depth of love, the love as a verb. It's transforming, it's amazing. There was someone in my life for almost 40 years who brought great grief and despair to me and other members of my family. And it wasn't until I stopped seeing that human being as an enemy and seeing it as a human being made in the image of God and struggling and praying and hoping and at times honestly resisting, trying to love her, that it brought about empathy. The greatest acts of love is really found from Genesis in the beginning. God created to the cross of Jesus Christ 
and to the eternity that the first and greatest artist is preparing for us. But to love is to risk and creating is risk. Um, we know that art shapes and reshapes us and that it's there in the cross of Jesus, I believe, that where beauty and violence collide and beauty won. And so that act of loving someone and that being purposely trying to, to love someone, especially those that seem or are viewed or deemed unlovable is in, in a way that is directly connected and intrinsically connected to our art making. Mm. And so I think it's powerful to think of love as, an, as, as you mentioned, Sheree, as an act, as an active way, as a mind. And I'm reminded of Romans 12, renewing our mind every day to love, renewing our mind to see, renewing our mind to create things so that we really truly believe and act that we are all created in his sight and we are made in his image. You mentioned art shaping us. And one of the things that is so interesting that you have pointed out in various speeches is that almost all of distinctly American music, whether it is gospel, jazz, ragtime, blues, soul, R&B, hip hop, or whatnot, all of those different genres were birthed within the context of suffering African-Americans. And so often injustice or oppression obliterates expressions of creativity, which is part of, of suffering itself. What do you think enabled this extraordinary variety of musical creativity amidst injustice? And what do you make of the fact that it largely defines what is considered uniquely American music? Mm, that's a fantastic question, Cherie. Of course it has to do with liberation. Of course it has to do with chasing beauty. Chasing beauty is a profound disturbance. It is an interruption of the flow of injustice. And so searching and capturing and experiencing beauty is a, a form of resistance. And this is most powerfully demonstrated in the profound beauty in the midst of unspeakable suffering in the African-American spirituals. The primary root of almost all American music is derived from the African-American spirituals. So what I'm saying is there be no blues, there be no ragtime, there be no hip hop, jazz, R&B, country, hip hop, pop music without the African-American spirituals. So the African-American spirituals were created by the enslaved Africans in America. And, and the question I, is always not far from my thoughts when, when singing or hearing or experiencing is, you know, that old question that's asked in the Old Testament, how did they sing a song in a strange land? And so the slaves took their everyday experience of plantation life and incorporated the hope of the spiritual and physical liberation mm -hmm. and created a body of music that stands the test of time. I wish they were here to know that the melodies they uttered, the melodies that they created in the midst of profound and devastating suffering would stand the test of time and would be the root of almost all American music. That is 
beauty in the midst of ashes. I wish they knew, I wish they were here, that those African rhythms that they brought with them when dragged to this country would be a part, integral part, that basic material would be integral part of what it means to be American music and that it would be played, created in the sense of performed around the world. So it's, it's powerful, it's a profound example of creating as resistance. I want to ask you about your most recent project, which in many ways encapsulates many of the themes that you have dedicated much of your life to studying and to, well, immersing yourself into performing as well as studying. And that is the Frederick Douglass Jazz Works Project, where you have essentially paired a series of improvisational jazz compositions with the words of Frederick Douglass. I would love to hear more from you about this. In many ways, reading Frederick Douglass's works, I think of almost a march, you know, rather than an improvisational sort of jazz composition. But what led you to devote putting it, devote several years of your life, really, to putting his words, and he was a word guy more than a music guy, his words to music. Well, you want to talk about beauty in the midst. Uh, that is Frederick Douglass. I, I think in another life, I would have been a historian. I love history. I love studying the patterns of human behavior. And I decided that, that if I'm going to communicate in jazz improvisational music, and I'd done a lot of decades of study of African-American spirituals and blues and gospel and jazz and other genres of music, and the history that came apart from it, that were embedded in it, I decided I was going to go to the root. And so we love our liberator, Harriet Tubman, but I chose Frederick Douglass simply because of what you noted, Sheree, that there's a lot of words, a lot of powerful, poetic and prophetic words. So I started studying him thought it would be a couple of years. It turned into almost a 10 year study. And I mean, this isn't a Google search. This is like going to the UK, going to Ireland, going to Scotland. Thankfully my music, you know, and concerts and things put me there, but I was able to stay a day or a week later and um, going to the Lincoln Library and the Schomburg and New York Public Library for 10 years and just gathering and understanding the culture of the time, what he faced, his courage, his strength, his, you know, his boldness in speaking truth. And at the end of it, I was riding a train and I said, I'm just going to long train ride. I'm going to read some of my favorite Frederick Douglass speeches. And a couple nights before I'd come up with some, to me, it was very odd composition of two double acoustic, double bass, two double bass and voice. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I put it away. And while I was reading one of his speeches, that rhythm of that composition reminded me of that's the words and the patterns and the rhythm in his speech. I came home and the words fit like a glove. I completed, composed two more songs surrounding it where the music came first and then I added the words or the words came first and I added the music. And I thought it would just be a tri trilogy, but it turned into a whole body of music where we actually have too much music now. We have to decide which ones are gonna appear on the album, but mm -hmm. it's been a powerful time and I think so many times in our culture, we examine the fruit, but we have to go all the way down to the root to really understand. And so I'm grateful for that time of study and really surprised and deeply grateful that the Lord 
allowed me to use my creativity as a composer, musician, a vocalist, and flautist to create this body of work where every lyric I sing are the words of Frederick Douglass. That's great. Yeah, you've mentioned before uh, the link between remembrance and hope. So it's not at all surprising to me that you uh, would engage in historical study. And I, I wanted to ask you about that, that, that link, you know, why that is, and that you know, obviously part of the way that music you know, keeps remembrance alive is by retaining and recalling our stories, you know, stories of our history. But there are many stories in our history, and not only those of individual persons, but also of peoples too, that can bring shame. Shame whether one is a victim, a perpetrator, complicit, absent, unaware, uh, whatever it is. And it seems that shame rarely brings hope or healing. So I'd love to hear more from you just about the way that music and creativity make possible not only remembrance, but a form of remembrance that could bring hope and healing. I love that question. Thank you for that question. You know, there's been many writers and poets and artists and musicians attributed to this quote, but I love this quote that music washes away the, from the soul, the dust of everyday life. And so what is the most important element in music? It's silence, it's that pause. It's in that pause of what has come before and what is coming that we can live, we remember the past, we remember the good and the bad, the ugly and the beautiful, but it's in that pause, in that silence that we can push forward to the, to the future. You know, that famous quote from Hans Christian Andersen that says, you know, where words fail, music speaks. And, you know, it's in that act of listening, I believe, that music can bring about. So the notes are important. Harmony is important. All the elements of music are important, but it's in that pause. And so it, it does bring back that remembrance. And to remember that, to remember is to recall and it's to honor the lives. You know, an enslaved African said when she saw a member of her tribe coming to the plantation, she said, are we yet alive to see each other's face and remember? And so actively remember is a, a testament, is an honoring of those that have gone before us, but it also is a way to propel us and force us and drag us and bring us and accompany us and walk alongside of us to continue to create. So I think the, the music, but particularly that silence you know, you think of bebops and all these, this, you know, convergence of notes upon notes. And, and then there's that silence that, that really brings about what was played and what is about to be played. You know, what we call, you know, the already and the not yet. And I think that in that remembrance and in those silent moments, that's where it's powerful and that's where music has its most powerful way. Also, you know, I'm a jazz musician. So it's also the improvisation of that risk of jumping off a mountain without a parachute, the risk of creating on the spot. And even though you study your theory and you, you practice and you're prepared and you know the art of practice and you understand that 
at that moment, you are jumping, you're leaping, you're risking. And in that risk, you fall. I mean, in jazz, you get tired of falling and you, you, know, you, you stop falling. You do what you need to, to minimize that. But it's in that falling and in remembering that pain and suffering of that fall that when you go, and in jazz, which is so powerful, is that there's the next note that determines whether it was a wrong note. So it's a theology of grace. You know, uh, the critic asked Miles Davis, oh, this is powerful what you play. There's two parts or four parts where I don't know how you got from that note to that note and that dynamic. And Miles Davis just said, oh, that's where I made a mistake. I just corrected in the next measure, in the next beat. And I think it's profound that we, those that follow the first and greatest artists, have, a, have the theology of grace that where we've made a mistake, we have a chance to make it right. In our nation, Sheree, in the history of our nation, we've made many mistakes, but we have another opportunity, another beat, another measure to get it right. And it's in remembering while actively forging ahead, but taking time to be silent and respecting that silence. Um, I'm anticipating that there are probably many people watching who like myself will never be musicians. I cannot carry a tune in a bucket. But given that you have spent a quarter century essentially you know, studying, performing, embodying you know, sort of this intersection of, of theology and artistry and beauty and justice, there are probably many people who are eager to be creative catalysts, even if they don't have artistic talent. What would you tell them? What can they do to be creative, artistic, chasers of beauty and catalysts for justice, even if there's very little musical ability? Sure, to see, to see beauty in the ordinary. I did a series, the photographer of taking ordinary objects that we never really, really take time to look at and to see the beauty of them. And really the beauty came when it was a close up of the, the object or um, the thing. And, and so it's powerful taking time to really look, to really see. But in the sense of creativity as a catalyst for justice, to become an ally. If you see injustice, become an ally. For those of us, there's some of us and, and hopefully most of us who are willing to be an artistic accomplice. That's creative. So it's not, I, I agree with you. I, it's actually putting that love into action. But in the midst of suffering and grief and lament, we look to the first and greatest artists who created out of nothing. And so we're living in a broken world and a pandemic where you know we have to cultivate a path towards loving and caring for each other. You know, as Francis Schaeffer saying, imagining, letting imagination rise above the stars, that realizing that art matters, that art matters in a broken world, that art matters, that art shapes, that art reshapes us, that art builds, that art rebuilds us, and that, you know, the mystery of creating is infused with the first and greatest artists. And so create and, and use it as an act of love, but begin by seeing and valuing and supporting those that can carry a tune for supporting those that are creating, encourage them and be an ally and accomplice, but 
create. All of us are creatives. We create it in different ways and on different levels and different volumes and different values, but create and bring beauty in the midst of that. That's great. Ruth would love to have the last word from you. Sure. I'm going to read a quote from my brother and friend who is an artist and um, a composer, and then just end with a few sentences of my own thoughts. Joshua Stamper states, no one thing we create is the definite statement of our aesthetic vision. Each work is a thread. All threads are woven together to create the larger tapestry of our vision and language. Each thread represents a moment that is unique. A thread spun tomorrow looks and feels different than the thread spun today or yesterday or next week. That is part of the beauty of the tapestry as it's being woven, moment by moment. When it's finished, all moments will be taken in at once. In the meantime, don't ask one thread to do the job of the full tapestry. While we spin each thread, our only responsibility is to make sure it is sound, strong, and has integrity. For me, art is essential to human life and its spirit. In a world of uncertainty, to create is an act of artistic disruption. Creativity is a vehicle for truth and can address the themes of justice through the lens of beauty. Creativity is essential to human life and its spirit, and it speaks profoundly to the human condition. In our time, we need redemptive beauty to serve as an interruption to the flow of injustice and as a form of resistance. Thank you, Ruth. That was beautiful. Thank you to all of you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos from our past events.